And that looks like a great island. You just want to spend maybe a couple of weeks vacation there. Um, maybe not if you, if, you, if you know where that is. Um, maybe you've already got plans to go there. I don't know. We'll find out later if, if that's even a relevant uh, place, relevant to our message or not. Um, you know, the question is often asked, uh, if Jesus was to address today's church, what would he say? And there are many people who have some well-measured, deep, and spiritual responses to this hypothetical question. You know, if Jesus were to address today's church, there are some that would say, of course, I know what he would say. He told me what he would say. Maybe, no, he didn't tell me that. Maybe they would say that. Uh, but, But there's even some wannabe spiritual types that have less measured responses that make you raise your eyebrow and say, would he really say that? Uh, But, you know, the point is everyone thinks they know exactly what Jesus would say if given the chance to talk to the churches as if he's somehow restrained from addressing us, as if there's somebody up in heaven saying, Jesus, you can't talk to them. You know, that's not how this works. Now, today we're beginning a brand new series that is really all about what Jesus would say if given the chance but it isn't going to be about hypotheticals, and it's better than that, actually. And it, don't worry, I didn't just come off the mountain. There isn't one that close from here, but I, I didn't just come off the mountain with, you know, some oracle from God. It's better than that, uh, actually. Uh, does anybody, and hopefully all of you do, but everybody has a Bible with them, right? If you don't have one, there's one in the hymnal rack in front of you. You, uh, you can hold it. I just want you to kind of hold it uh, while we're talking about this over the next couple of minutes. If you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, um, you're, you could probably download the version app on your phone in the next 30 seconds, um, and you can uh, be reading any translation that you would like to. But uh, the, the Bible, the Bible contains what Jesus would say to today's church if given the chance. You think, well, man, where's it at? The Bible contains exactly what Jesus would say to today's church, to our church, if given the chance. Not that he's waiting for the opportunity to speak, he's just waiting for us to listen. In fact, he's waiting for us to open the Bible so that we can read exactly what he has to say to today's church. Now, we're going to look at a very specific book of the Bible in just a little bit, but I wanted to just talk about the Bible as a whole up front. I wanted to talk about the Bible in general. Now, there's a few things we're going to go over. Most of you, most everybody here uh, and and that are listening agrees with what we're going to talk about over the next couple of minutes, but if you're not really a big Bible person and nothing wrong with saying, you know, I don't know a lot about it. I've heard a lot about it. I've been told a lot about it, but I don't know a lot about it. If that's you, today's a great day to be here because if you don't know a lot about the Bible, um, we want to give you some help and we want to give you some confidence um, about what the Bible is and why the Bible should be and actually is very important, very relevant to you. So uh, here's a few things we know about the Bible, we believe about the Bible. The Bible is the inspired, complete Word of God. We believe that. That's what Christianity upholds. That's what all Protestant denominations up believe. We as a church, you know, not just because we're Baptist, but we're evangelical, but we as Christians believe the Bible is the inspired, that means breathed out, complete as in front to back, finished word of God. As in the Bible is God's word. We believe the Bible was inspired. We believe that it does inspire, which is really cool, really awesome. It's the record, notice the definitive nature of that, the record and the source of revelation 
and inspiration. So if you want revelation, look no further than the Bible. If you want inspiration, look no further than the Bible. Now, maybe you wonder, why is this limited to the Bible? Now, maybe you, that's a legitimate question. That's a good question. Why is it limited to the Bible? But let me first say, say there's nothing limited about the Bible. When, when people say, why is it limited to the Bible? I mean, the Bible, it, it's not short. It, you know, it's very comprehensive. It, it, it's got a lot in it. Uh, there's nothing limited about the Bible when it comes to what is revealed about God. It's pretty big and, and contains tons more than we'll ever be able to understand or comprehend about God. Uh, there are walls and libraries dedicated to certain sections of the Bible. There are, you know, shelves full of books written about just a single book of the Bible. Uh, the reality that revelation and inspiration is limited to the Bible, that anybody would ever question that. It's kind of weird because limited doesn't mean less, right? Limited doesn't mean that there's less there. It just means it's exclusive too. Limited to the Bible means it's exclusive. It's only in. But the good thing is it's accessible. As in, yes, God's revelation and inspiration is exclusive to the Bible, yet it's accessible to everybody. The idea that we need more, I suppose, is appealing in some circles, but God has given us everything we need. And, and, and there are some that say, well, you know, what if I get something that somebody else doesn't? Listen, the way this works, God is not just my God or your God. He's our God. He is the God of all people. And God is a good father. You know what good fathers do? They love their children equally, right? They love their children equally. And God, as a good father, wants everyone to have access to his full heart at all times. So God, as your good father, has given you all equal access to his heart, to his mind, to his revelation, which is why his word is complete. If it, he says anything, it's from, it's rooted, it's, in, it's, it's from the Bible. His revelation is not paywalled behind some experience or education. It's right here for everyone who simply opens it up and has an open heart, open mind to receive it. That's incredible, isn't it? Now, we believe he gifts certain people with the ability and the passion, the clarity to preach, teach, and communicate his word. That's why we gather in church every Sunday. We believe there is value in coming together, studying together, because God might use one of you to show someone else something that they did not see on their own, yet it comes from the same place, right? Uh, we always come to church with confidence that whatever God is going to say is rooted in the Bible. And we will expound, and what we expound on is from the Bible, but that might not explain why the window of time that's covered in the Bible was God's preferred way of revealing himself. Because maybe you're wondering, okay, I get all that. The Bible is the exclusive word of God, the only source and record of God's revelation, inspiration. I get all that, but, but why is all of it from so long ago? You know, why did God decide to reveal himself and then all of a sudden stop it? I mean, it's been a thousand, 2,000 years. I mean, why is it all stuck way back and time, and that's a good question, another important question, but also we need to understand that the Bible uh, as God's word, as our faith is rooted in God's word, our faith is not based on just a book. So the idea that God's word is the Bible and it came from heaven one day, complete leather bound with all 66 books, you know, titled and verse, all that, that that's kind of a, a misnomer. Our faith is not based on just a book. It's based on the events that this book details and builds on. 
When we say the Bible is inspired, we don't just mean that it, it was written as inspired, but we believe it's better than that. We read God's work in history. We read how God was active in history, and we receive God's work into our own stories from past to present. Long ago, God was working out his redemption plan, brought together all these moving parts and pieces, and then the word was recorded um, as we have it and adds and clarifies that mere people couldn't, well, mere people could not figure it out. And, And even better than that, the same spirit, the same spirit who was behind the word is between the words, moves from the word. This is what's incredible about studying the Bible. And if you didn't know this, this is so cool to, to, to just wrap your mind around. The Spirit of God was present during the events that are recorded in the Bible. That God was active in all these things we read about through the nation of Israel, through the, the foundation of the church. God was active in those things. He was present in those things. And that same Spirit presided over the documentation of those things. As in the Spirit of God was behind the events, then he moved through the men and women who wrote those events down and editorialized and expounded upon those events. The same Spirit was present during, presided over their documentation, and this is maybe the best part for you and I, he empowers us when we read it. The same Holy Spirit that was present when it happened, that was present when it was written, is present when we read read it. He was active through the original events. He co-authored the written accounts and he attends to our consumption of it. So to bring all this together, the Bible is the orchestrated, interpreted, and living revelation and inspiration of God. The Bible begins with the creation of the world, how humanity fell away from this perfect place that God gave us Details how God vowed to successfully redeem the world that walked away from him. Now, I know we sort of do these collective evaluations every once in a while, but I think it's important for us to know just what we have access to. And we not get distracted by a world that's always looking for some new, mysterious, vague, and elusive thing we need not underestimate just what God has given us, the inspired word of God that continues to inspire the people of God. That's what you have on your bookshelf. That's what you have on your coffee table. That's what you have downloaded to your phone and every other device. That's what you have in front of you today. That's what is accessible to you every day of your life, the inspired word of God that continues to inspire the people of God. The Old Testament reveals our sin, shows that mere religion is not going to cure our problems. It shows that our own works are not going to undo the curse that we're under. It promises a Savior is going to do that for us. The New Testament reveals that Savior. His name is Jesus and tells us that his death and resurrection made a way for us to get back to God, be restored to God. Jesus' teaching and the teaching of his followers laid the foundation that the church was built on to create a community of God and await the kingdom of God. That's where we are now as the church has been built on this foundation called to create a community of God around these principles, around his revelation, around this inspiration, a community of God that awaits the kingdom of God. The church was commissioned to evangelize the world, to spread the news. 
warning of the dangers of living outside of Christ, spreading the joys that come from living in Christ, filled with the hope of heaven. That is our commission, to warn of of the danger that comes from living and, of course, dying outside of Christ and spreading and modeling the good news, the joy, the peace, the salvation that we have in Christ, filled with hope of eternal life. That is our commission as the church. That's why we worship and that's why we serve. The beauty of the living word of God is that the New Testament, which addresses churches that were established in the first century, those letters and those teachings are just as applicable to us all these years later. Paul's letter to Corinth, Ephesus, to Rome are just as helpful to us as they were to them. But there are some things in those letters that are time and place that require a bit of context every once in a while. Which is why sometimes we might be reading them and thinking, wouldn't it be cool if there was a personal letter to us? Wouldn't it be cool if God wrote a letter to our church, to our generation? And would you believe that the last book of the Bible is that very letter? Now, I know what you're thinking. The last book. You mean the book of Revelation? That book? That book that's about all those weird images and prophecies, that book that requires you watching 100 movies and attending conferences and getting a few degrees and you still won't understand it? You mean that book? It's written to us? As in not just us in spiritual or general you know, matter, but us, literally, that book is written. Yes, that book, that book, and a big point of clarity, the book of Revelation is actually a letter written to every local church, to the church in every generation. Now, to be clear, there are some specific churches addressed and named, but what we're going to learn today is that the book of Revelation was always meant to be a timeless message to every church in every age, including our church, including this age. So to answer the question, what would Jesus say if he were to address the church today, our church, our area of churches? We don't have to wonder or speculate. The answer is the book of Revelation. Now, what we're going to do over the next several weeks is study this book, not the whole book, but certain chapters that I believe are offer incredible insight to our generation. For the first couple of weeks, we're going to focus on the first few chapters that address a collective of churches that, as we'll learn today, serve as a template and serve as a representation of every church that's ever existed for the whole church from the beginning of this age to the very end. So if you have your Bible open to the very last book, and if you haven't, you can find it pretty easily. Just turn past your maps and concordance and all the helps, and you'll find Revelation. Uh, If you have your Bibles open, I want to read verses 1 through 4 to set the table for us, and then we'll get into what I believe God has to say to our church and to today's church from this book, really exclusively. Revelations 1 verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must take place, must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God, to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. 
John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you, peace from him who is, who is, who was, and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. If you think to pay attention to right out of the gate, this is not a book that contains far-flung mysteries. Verse 1 makes it very clear that this isn't the case as it is billed as in today's world. Verse 1 makes it very clear, I'm talking about things that will soon take place. And this was written in 90 or so, 95 or so AD. So very relevant, not just to a future generation, but to John's generation. In verse verse 3, it says, the time is near. And and again, in verse 4, we have this really powerful statement, him who was, who is, and is to come, as if this is talking about something that has happened, will happen, and will always happen. But that for the, the phrase there in verse 3 that says the time is near, that echoes something that we hear from Jesus in his ministry, the beginning of his ministry. When Jesus first began preaching, Mark chapter 1, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand or it's close or it's near. So what this sets up for us is a book that's going to detail things that the church has faced would face and would continually face until kingdom come. Does that make sense? This book is going to detail the things the church had faced, would face, and would always, would continually face until kingdom come. Now, verse 4 refers to the churches, uh, these churches as the seven churches of Asia. Now, I want to talk about why that being the audience is important uh, for us. First off, let's look at a map. Um, of course, this is not history class, but y- you, you can look at your back of your Bibles and see a better picture of this. Over on the right side of the screen, down in the far right corner, you'll see the nation of Israel. And if you can't see it, that's just down the, the general vicinity. Nation of Israel. Over on the left top of the screen, you'll have Italy where Rome is. You have Greece in the middle. Then you have this very large area called Turkey. In the ancient world, uh, before everybody knew about all the rest of the world, that area of Turkey was referred to as Asia or sometimes referred to as Asia Minor in reference to the rest of Asia. But in the Bible, when you see the, phrase, the word Asia, it's talking about Turkey, the nation of Turkey, which was actually a pretty big, pretty big place in terms of the church's growth and expansion. To go a little bit closer in, Turkey, uh, the nation of Turkey, down there at the Red Star is Antioch, where they begin the second church plant in the book of Acts, Acts 11. They go from Israel, go from Jerusalem to Antioch. That's where the apostle Paul served, where he launched his ministry from. And then again, on the left side of your screen, all those little red dots, those are the seven churches of Asia, the seven churches that are addressed by John, by Jesus in this book. So essentially, God is referring to, God is focusing on seven churches in a single country, the country of Turkey. Now, why these seven churches? Why these seven churches? Were there more than seven churches in Turkey? I'm sure there were, but seven is a thematic number. Notice it says there that there are seven spirits around the throne. Seven is a thematic number that speaks of completion in the scripture. So I think God picked these seven because they sort of capture the full picture, the full landscape of the church world at the time and still can serve to do that. In those days, seven churches in a single nation was a big deal. 
But in these days, there are churches that span the seven continents across the seven seas. So again, I think God picked these churches in Turkey to represent what would become the whole world. Now, maybe you're wondering, why Turkey though? You know, why not Greece? Why not Rome? Why not Israel? Well, at this point in history, Israel was in ruins. The Jewish wars in the 70s uh, of that century destroyed Israel. The Jews were uh, persecuted en masse. The Christian Jews had fled the country and had took refuge in Turkey after the war of 70 and, and the decades of 70 and 80 AD. Turkey was where the church really boomed and expanded under, under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He had taken the gospel and established churches in Greece and Rome. But at this point, persecution was at its most severe yet. Rome had identified the church and Jesus' followers as enemies of the empire. During the 60s, Emperor Nero set Christians on fire and banned them from the city. During the 70s, Titus launched widespread persecution against the church. And it was during the 80s and the 90s of that first century that persecution really began to rout the church. And the momentum of the growth was stunted in Rome and in Greece. And largely the church had been pushed back into Turkey, underground in many instances. Turkey was by no means a safe haven. Rome ruled that area as well. But it was easier for them to thrive here. Yet Rome was relentlessly and ruthlessly pursuing them. Emperor Domitian ruled from 81 to 96 AD. He was uh, what you call a piece of work, uh, to be nice. He had longed for the glory days of Rome. He believed that he was going to take the empire back to its roots as it was under Julius and Augustus, where the emperor was considered to be God in flesh. Uh, Domitian became obsessed with the Roman god Jupiter. He believed he was Jupiter. He built statues to himself all over the empire and demanded that he be worshipped as God. Everybody complied except for the Jesus followers who said that the Jewish carpenter Rome killed was actually God. This made Domitian's ego and temper rage. Uh, he blamed Christianity for ruining Rome. He was so bent against Jesus that he put together a team, uh, put together a team dedicated to hunting down anybody related to him. He didn't really know how the whole, you know, church, the, the government or the leadership of the church was, was operated, but he believed that if he could just find any related people to Jesus, he could really kind of snuff out the source and kill the movement. He went sent this team to Israel and searched all over the Roman Empire for anybody that had a heritage in the tribe and lineage of David from Judah. And he killed hundreds of Jews that were of the tribe of Judah, particularly targeting Jesus' brother Jude and his family. And as time went on, Domitian realized that Jesus had a group of followers that weren't related to him, but that were handpicked by him, and they were really the leaders of the church. So as he continued down this road, he gained some intel that made him see red. He learned that Jesus had one disciple that was still alive. So Domitian began a quest to hunt down the last living apostle, John, son of Zebedee. 
John, at this point, was in his 80s and 90s, or 90s. He presided over the region of Turkey. He was helping this group of churches endure the hardship they were facing. He watched over these churches. When Peter and Paul went to Rome and Greece, John stayed in Turkey. He spent decades serving these churches, strengthening and equipping the next generation leadership. And if you research the second century church leadership, men like Clement, Polycarp, Ignatius, all were disciples of John. John was seized and after Domitian learned that he was the last of his kind and held tremendous knowledge about Jesus, responsible for circulating the account that detailed Jesus as the one and only God made flesh. Domitian was full of rage, full of wrath. He ordered a special kind of martyrdom for John. Rather than feeding him to lions, rather than decapitating him, rather than crucifying him, John would be bold in oil alive. But history says that John miraculously just would not die no matter how hot they turned the furnace up. He survived the oil bullying, no doubt scarred and deformed. His broken body was exiled to a prison island called Patmos. And it was on Patmos that John received the final revelation from God, aptly named the revelation reflecting its purpose uh, as a timeless record from God to his church during this new age. Now, again, that name is very important. It's the Revelation. We often hear it called the book of Revelations, as in it has all these different visions that are strung together as some timeline of events. But the Revelation is not meant to be understood as all a bunch of different events that take place one after the other. It's meant to be a single vision that we get multiple angles from. We get different shots of. We get different camera perspectives of. Now, more on that in a minute. But the title suggests that the Revelation is going to be the definitive message for the church age. As the age of apostles has ended, John being the last of them, the foundation was laid, the church age had begun, and this is the world in which the church was placed to do ministry. This world wherein they were ostracized, persecuted, put in a corner. The book of Revelation sets up what the church would face as a persecuted people and calls them to a a cause of endurance and faithfulness. Now, I I want you to think about that time Jesus prayed the night before he died. Remember who he prayed for. He prayed for the church. He prayed for us. He prayed for you and I. Now, John is the only guy that wrote that prayer down. So I think there's a connection between John writing that prayer down and John writing this book down, don't you think? John wrote that prayer that Jesus prayed the night before he died where he addressed his disciples and those that would come through them, those that would come after them, that's us. Listen to what Jesus prayed that night. I have given them your word and the world has hated them. The world has rejected them. The world has uh, persecuted, put pressure on them. The world opposes them. The systems of the world are set against them because they have exposed those systems. The world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But he said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. There's a very important connection between that verse and the way we interpret Revelation. That verse says, I don't ask that you remove them, but I'm asking and praying that you equip them 
and keep them from the evil of the world and equip them to endure and be faithful amidst the oppression they face. That's very key to us interpreting this book because Jesus prayed that night and then he gives this vision to John that's directly in line with that thesis, that premise, that statement. I don't ask that you take them, but I ask that you keep them from the evil and equip them for their job. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them. So again, this book is not about us being taken out or being given a pass. This book is about us being sent into a world that by no means is going to cooperate, by no means is going to facilitate, that will actually oppose in many ways. Yet our mission is still on. So John's revelation is going to emphasize the church's mission against, in spite of, the world's condition. The church's mission against the world's condition. In John's place of exile, riding to the churches of Asia, what had been a safe haven from persecution would no longer be. These circumstances, according to Revelation, would be constant for the church going forward. Going forward, no matter the age, the church would be an oppressed minority, ridiculed for radical ideas. And the Revelation is written to encourage faithfulness and endurance, to equip us and strengthen us to be faithful and endure. Because the pressure was about to become unreal on the church. There was nowhere to hide as they had been routed from Israel. They had been exiled from Greece and Rome. This was a crossroads of faith and culture as the renewed imperial cult of Domitian threatened and pressured the church to deny Christ, honor the emperor as God. The, there are dozens of stories of Rome pressuring the churches as they sniffed out across the late first century and all throughout the second and third centuries from 90 AD to 300 or so AD. They would hunt Christians down, systematically torture them. But it would continue past those days. In many ways, it continues to this day as the world sets itself against who we are, what we believe, and, and what we try to do. We remain at a crossroads of faith and culture where the church is pressured to compromise for this world. The question as it was for John's generation, as it is for our generation, it is for every generation, the question that Revelation wrestles with, would the church give in to the pressure? Would cultural and societal idolatry choke out our devotion to God? Revelation deals with the systems of this world, the economics of this world, the politics of this world, the, the ways and morals of this world. As they put pressure on the church, will the church give in? Will we allow the idols of this world to distract us and to take our devotion out of God and into them? Will we turn from God because of economics? Will we turn from God because of politics? Will we turn from God because of morals? That is the question that Revelation wrestles with. And that is the question that is in front of us today. Will we give in? Will we be faithful? Will we endure? John, of course, represents the tip of the iceberg of this pressure. He had been exiled for preaching that Jesus alone deserves exclusive worship as our one and only Lord, as our one and only King. This vision he receives is all about the church fighting this pressure. 
being called to endure this pressure, overcome with unwavering faithfulness, John writes to us as one who is in this with us, as one whose likeness felt the weight of this world, but he was relieved with the hope of heaven. Look at verse 4 through verse 8, or verse 5 through verse 8. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, washed us from our sins in his own blood, has made us kings and priests to the God and Father. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even though they who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth who mourn, will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. A few things in those verses. Verse 5, Jesus refers to himself as the faithful witness. He is the only true, sure, and clear witness of God's heart. Now, look at verse 5 and 6. There's a lot of things in this ver- these verses that we're told about Jesus pertaining to why he alone deserves our heart, our devotion, and our praise. Verse 5 and 6 tell us this. Jesus defeated death. He rules the earth. He loves us. He freed us from sin, and he has made us royalty in the kingdom of God. I mean, is that enough reasons? Are those enough reasons to give God our whole heart, our whole devotion, and our only praise? He is the one who defeated death. He rules the earth. As in, he said it very clear that he alone is worthy to rule this planet. He alone is worthy to rule creation. He loves us. He has forgiven us of our sin. He has made us royalty. This is what God wants us to know about him. And that we would never question and never waver on and always make fully and clearly known. These are the bullet points of every message we preach, every invitation we give. They always should remind us and encourage us as believers. When death threatens us, well, Jesus defeated that. When the rulers of this earth intimidate us, well, Jesus is greater than you. When we feel like we're unloved, Jesus loves me. When sin tries to dominate us, we're free from sin. When we feel like that we're nobody, Jesus says you are royalty. Every one of those bullet points confronts the things the enemy says to us to get us down, to defeat us, to discourage us. Every one of those empowers us and equips us and raises us up. And that is why Jesus alone deserves our whole heart and our devotion. One thing that's often misrepresented about Revelation, we hear it is Jesus versus the world. We hear the book used to vilify certain people, classes, parties, and countries. We use it to divide the church even more. This book is not about Jesus versus people. It's not about him opposing people. Jesus loves people. He loves the world. Or he wouldn't have wrote this book to it. All that Jesus testifies to makes it very clear that Jesus is God's witness of salvation unto the whole world. He does not oppose people. He opposes sin and death and has overcome them. He wants us to understand he opposes what is sinful. He opposes what is deadly. He opposes what is ungodly because whatever is sinful, deadly, and ungodly is not for us. And if God is for us, how could he be for anything that is against us? He can't and he never will be. Jesus is the witness of and from God. He, his entire word embodies his standards. 
There are things about the Bible, there's things the Bible teaches that we may not agree with or we may disagree with. But you can trust this authoritatively that everything God's word endorses reflects God's portion for us. If God is for it and he says you should be for it, that's because that's God's portion for you. And anything God's word opposes reflects sin's poison in us. So if God's against it, it's because he says that's this poison of sin trying to keep you from me. The Bible teaches about behavior and moral, lifestyle choices, relationships, finances, all that. It all comes from a place that Jesus wants to give us life. Life is found under his rule, under his love, in his freedom. Verse six details the portion that God has given to us, our inheritance, our identity. We have a glorious purpose. We are kings, queens, priests in the kingdom of God. Verse seven says that Jesus is coming again. This world and its systems will face a reckoning for opposing him. This age will end and every generation's church ought to live with that understanding. Don't get too comfortable. Your place in this world and everything in this world that you have is temporary. May our priorities, our passion, and our pursuit be all about the kingdom of God. And again, verse 8 is a key verse. The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. This leads us in closing. Look with me at verse 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation, the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet, saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Having, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, his, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. His voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John assumes this vision of Christ was one of judgment. But actually, it's one of salvation. Letting him know that he would not face this world alone. Again, back in verse 11, he hears the voice. Then he turns in verse 12. Verse 11 tells us that Jesus tells him to address the churches and then he turns and faints in the sight of God. But verse 17 continues, he laid his right hand on me saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after this. The things that have happened, are happening, will happen. Jesus says, John, the things I'm about to show you are a revelation of what has been going on behind the scenes, is going on, and will go on until the day of redemption comes. The reason for this book is to help the church cope with its struggle. Being a reality the kingdom of God has always faced, the point of this book is that that struggle will end one day, but until it does... 
Revelations 2 through 18, John is given several windows to look out into the battle the church is going to face, the battle this world brings upon us. The message is that we must stay vigilant, that we must remain confident. The best picture I can give you that helps visualize what John's going to see in this book is a castle tower. That every so chapters, he looks out a different window and he sees the landscape of this world. Then he moves to another window and another window. Revelation is meant to be a fortress, a stronghold for the church to take refuge in, to ensconce the church so that we might be able to observe what's going on and have confidence that no matter the attacks, no matter the oppression, we can be galvanized that we serve an unstoppable God. The whole book of Revelation is an allegory of the struggle that's rising against the, the church as the world is trying to claw and grip for what it has held on to. This is why we can confidently say this book gives us comfort and strength because we are safe in that tower through it all. Now, maybe you wonder, well, why is Revelation full of all sorts of dramatic and fantastical images? We've just read this description of Jesus and that seems so, that seems so outlandish. And we'll read about dragons and beasts and all this stuff. The best way I can con conclude it is no human language offers the words that can do justice to the wonders of heaven or the horrors of hell. I mean, John literally couldn't describe what he saw. He fell over like he was dead. People that have visions and tell you everything they saw, I question them. John couldn't. John's, John says, you know, my language is not going to do justice to things I've seen. The wonders of heaven, the horrors of hell. So I'm just going to do my best to always bring about a posture of worship through it all. And that's where John always comes back to in this book. He always falls on his face and worships God in the midst of these visions, in the midst of these revelations. I think that's a good place for us to end this first week in this book. At a place of worship. Jesus says to John, do not be afraid. He says, I am he who lives and was dead. I'm alive forevermore. Down in verse number 18, he says, I am proof that you don't have anything to be afraid of. Verse 19 tells us the trials and pressure that we face will continue as long as the church age persists. This book is about asking us the question, will our faithfulness and will our endurance persist? The church will not fall, but will we remain faithful? Will we serve and exalt Jesus as our only Lord and our only King? Will we give in to pressure or will we honor him no matter what? Because as verse 7 told us, he is coming again. Until then, verse 20 tells us that every church, it says the mystery of the seven stars which you saw are in my right hand. Those seven stars, lampstands, all represent the churches. It says that the seven stars are the angels and the seven lampstands are the churches. Notice they are in the right hand of Jesus. The hand of God in the Bible has two connotations, protection and power. So what is John's message to us in the book of Revelation? No matter the pressure we face, we are protected and we are empowered in the hand of God. That's what this book is all about, putting us in the hand of God, reminding us that he protects us and empowering us for our mission. When the world spins out of control, we are in his hand. 
So let me ask you, what will you do with this privilege and honor? You are in the right hand of God. Protection and power that we do not deserve. What will we do with our time on the stage in this church age? Revelation addresses every generation and we have it in front of us right now. We're on the stage. Could we be the last of this age? Maybe. We could just be the next in line of many more to come. But yet we remain in this place of privilege, in this place of protection, this place of power. Let's end today with a proclamation that Jesus is our Lord and he is our King and nobody else and nothing else is gonna rival his place in our lives. Can we make that proclamation together? If you can't, maybe you'd like to come and proclaim him as your Lord and your King for the first time. Follow him and receive this protection, receive this power that only comes from him. Maybe you'd like to rededicate your life because you wanna know what it's like to truly live and dwell in that place of protection and power. The doors of God's kingdom are wide open. Jesus says, come and see this is an exclusive opportunity to be a part of God's family, to be royalty in his kingdom, to be a part of his story, to live out your place in this church age and help build towards his glorious kingdom to come. Revelation features many starring characters and we're one of them. What will we do with our place in the hand of God? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this encouraging reminder from your word. You are the Lord, you are King, you are the only one who deserves our worship and our devotion and our praise. This world puts pressure on us and it's trying its best to drown out our praise and discourage us and defeat us and distract us. But Revelation reminds us that we cannot be distracted. We have been put on a royal mission to endure as the church and build the kingdom of God. We look out these windows and we get discouraged. We get worried and we become afraid of what we are seeing. But yet we remain in the stronghold, in the tower of God. We are protected and we are empowered, sent out on mission to be the church, to spread that message of good news and to live out those virtues of love and joy and peace that are not found in this world and will only be experienced if we share that message. God, thank you for the gift of salvation. I pray that everybody in here has that gift, knows that gift and thrives in that gift. Lord, if there's somebody who need to make a decision today, would you help them? Would you encourage them? Would you Bring them to that place of public confession and proclamation that you are their savior. You are the savior of the whole world. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand as we sing, you are the Lord. If you have a need, the altar is open. The spirit is moving. Would you receive him today?